Caroline Sullivan has written about music for 40 years, first for Melody Maker, then for The Guardian, where she was chief rock critic. She's the author of four books on Madonna, Ed Sheeran, Adele, and the Bay City Rollers, which we will get to later. First, I spotted book five listed on the Waterstones website. I was very excited about it, Caroline. So I'd like to ask you why you're spending the rest of the year writing about Dua Lipa. She's made some really good song choices. She's done some good collaborations. She And, and she's tapped into um, the kind of overriding sound of today, which is dance music with um, a lot of pop thrown in and she's got a really strong voice also she works incredibly hard at it i mean she does a weekly podcast which you can subscribe to it's called service at 95 um so she actually does this whole weekly podcast um talking about things that catch her attention a lot of it is um feminist and um which is great um and you just think how does she how does she actually find the time to do all this stuff so which just basically i think substantiates my theory that people who become really big pop stars they have a couple of things in common one of which you know talent obviously um one of which is phenomenal drive like ed sheeran who i wrote a book on which we'll talk about in a minute but ed sheeran would you know get up at three in the morning to call the record company reps in japan just to see you know how his current album is doing on the chart um so anyway talent drive um and and just a, a willingness to work as hard as you have to work and and never complain about it and i think that's how you get a lasting career and she seems totally on board with all that it's fascinating to see and remember that the sixth single from her first album new rules they they went that deep i remember hearing new love and thinking that was a hit and it wasn't a smash you draw comparison or you've you've said about griff black hole was not a hit it was a minor hit And and sounds great. Uh, Dua Lipa, it took six songs to get to number one. People knew of her, um, but the explosion after New Rules, which hit at the right time, and then she had the foresight to have this disco-fied album, which is brilliant. Future nostalgia. Every time I hear something on that record, it gets the endorphins going and makes me feel good. Do you think that is what pop music should be? Um, Well, ideally, yes. But so often, when you said she brought you know she put out new rules at the right time i mean so much of well that this is the fourth thing the fourth thing which i forgot to add to my list of how you make it big um so much of it is luck as well but just seizing the moment at the exact right time and to be honest you just can't predict what the right time is going to be um for her she was actually incredibly lucky that um future nostalgia came out just as the first lockdown was starting i think it was out in was it april march 20, april, yeah. March, yeah. april 2020 just as the first lockdown was starting and and suddenly people you know they couldn't go out and dance and so they wanted to listen to songs that that, that made them feel like dancing and um she had a very fresh sound um she has a, a, a very nice personality i mean if you actually listen to her interviews online um she's very articulate and um i mean i hate to say this but she's much more articulate than most pop stars <laughs> yeah um i saw she, um, i saw her her talking to stephen colbert which was fascinating because um really? she, was, she was rolling out her 
uh, podcast and her newsletter and she said, I actually want to flip a question back onto you and ask you about your Catholicism. And that showed A, research and B, just foresight and planning. Uh, so her appearance with Colbert was brilliant. And then contrast that with the light show for physical, which she performed at the Brit Awards in 2021, which I read a great review of Dua Lipa by Caroline oh. Sullivan, actually. It was from 2017. <laughs> you wanted her to be yeah. more vulnerable. Are you seeing uh, was, that now? And I wasn't really impressed with the show because she, um, she didn't really seem to have anything to say for herself. And the music at that point just wasn't distinctive enough in its own right to really carry, to, to really make me think this is a star in waiting. The um, Shepherd's Bush, I don't remember at all. Uh, what did I say? That you just, you just said, you, you, you said the songs are good, but I think you wanted her to stand out from the crowd. Ah, yes. Well, I always want that. And now she utterly has completely. Um, Funnily enough, Rita Ora, a a fellow um, Kosovan, because um, Dua is um, Kosovan Albanian, and I think Rita is as well. I mean, the the two, when you when you compare them, which you have to, I mean, you don't want to compare two women, you know, one woman singer to another woman singer, but they both come from the same place. So it's Mm -hmm. worth a comparison. Rita, I think, epitomizes the stuff that I'm not that keen on. Um, the music is okay, but not particularly distinctive. She herself, she seems to go up that um, that route of relying on her um, her good looks and sexiness. Um, I mean, I'm sure she's a wonderful person. I once um, I once interviewed her manager, um, and uh, her manager only had good things to say about her. Well, clearly, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, a biased um, source, yeah, I believe. Duh. That would be cool. Um, but um, did you know that Rita Ora wanted to um, be in the running for the, God, was it 2013, the, the uh, UK's entry for Eurovision of what, whatever that particular year was? Wow. And her manager and her manager talked her out of it and said, don't do that because you'll never get a career off the ground. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think she was right because um, the UK entry, whoever they are, apart from Sam Ryder, generally never <laughs> gets a career off the ground if they're... I mean, it was whatever... You know, I interviewed her manager like, oh, God, six or seven years ago, and I don't know how long Rita's been around. I mean, like seven or eight years, so... Mm-hmm. And anyway. We've, we've sent her to Australia. Um, <laughs> Have we? <laughs> but yes, which is... Um, because she, she lied twice about breaking lockdown rules, and she's now on The oh. Voice in Australia. Oh, is she? Is she a judge? Ah, oh, but she was also a judge on the UK version, wasn't she? Yes, I think it was just oh. easier to move her. Fact, just just oh. change the name in the contract. All of this is to say, I'm looking forward to your Dua Lipa book. What's it called? Is it called New Rules? Um, I actually, I mean, there's there's no title yet because it's not coming out for such a long time. Um, but I was thinking about New Rules. Um, I've already. Um, done a chapter plan so at least i know um the structure the book is going to take and i'm actually starting it tomorrow so um today is july 3rd i'm starting it july 4th um and um it's uh filing it uh beginning of december so i've got Brilliant. five months that's mm. that's plenty and uh well i, I do hope so you're, you're distracted because i've been to brighton a few times i'm in watford which is preparing today for an invasion of elton john fans because elton is playing oh, really? two nights at vicarage road as oh, part oh, of his the, tour. Uh, stadium ah don't, don't you think it's really funny that elton john really loves football well he's, he's he had a family member he had an uncle who was a footballer and really? growing yeah uh, he played an FA Cup final, Roy, and broke his leg. Mm. 
So, um, and Watford were the biggest club to where he grew up in Pinner and it was a place where he could go and probably to do with the father figure in his life who was quite staid. He could see men be emotional. And yes, he is, he is the life president of the football club. So if he yeah, says, yeah, I want a gig yeah. at the club, he has one. Yeah. Tickets well, are yeah, £90. £90 tickets. So I love Elton, but not 90 quid to hear him but croak for three hours. But you know what? I would... Yeah. I mean, I do, I, I do genuinely like him. And I, if I want to, if, you know, if I lived around there, and I, I would pay £90 because um, it eventually, I mean, he keeps, he keeps saying that every farewell tour is, is, is genuinely his farewell tour. One, you know, one day he actually will have a genuine farewell tour. And I'd like to say that I saw him at a stadium. So, um, you know, in, um, in a really big setting. I've seen him at the Palladium completely different from seeing him you know with like bells and whistles and lights and um stage decor and everything yes when he was headlining Wembley Stadium in the 70s you were chasing after someone else which we will get to later ah, indeed. for, for any yeah, roller yeah. fans who are listening who ah. expect to hear about uh Tam Payton Boo and Les McKeon <laughs> yay uh then we can you did say um and I com- I was completely with you on this you went to see The Cure and they played 45 tracks across three hours. And you said if they yeah. had kept it to 90 minutes, it would have been a five-star show. Well, I mean, it's absolutely true. It's um, it's just that some bounds. I mean, in, in that way, they're very close to Bruce Springsteen, who doesn't consider a gig a gig unless it's four hours long. Mm-hmm. And The Cure, I honestly had no idea whatsoever how long it was going to be. I'd seen them once before. They were doing a secret gig at the uh, Forum with Hole. You know, Courtney loves yeah. Hole. Um, supporting and at that gig because it was kind of um, a special gig they played for like an hour and a half so when I went to see them at um, I think it was the Albert Hall I had no idea that they would play for a very 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 long time and um, unless you're a serious cure head um, it's really hard to pay attention for that length of time And, and also there's two cures there's the goth one, and then there's the version that had all the hits that I like, because I'm not yeah. a goth. Although, I am looking forward to John Robb. Isn't John based in Brighton? John Robb's got a book about goth coming out later this year. Does he? Um, I, don't, I don't think he is based in Brighton. I know, I know pretty much all the music-y types based in Brighton. I don't think he is. I, I think I've got that confused, because I went down to The Great Escape, and I saw him with the haircut that you can't miss. He was with Kerry McCarthy, his friend Kerry, because he was doing a panel oh. as part of The Great Escape, the MP. And I went up to him and just got chatting. He said, oh, come and have dinner with us. So I had one of the loveliest couple of hours of my life with... I can, yeah, I can imagine yeah. that. Um, I mean, I love the fact that um, you know, he's got louder than more and he can actually put anything he wants on there. And he has some really good people writing for him as well. Well, while we're here, we might as well say that you were the chief rock critic at The Guardian. Were you working under Michael Hamm? Or... Uh, well, that, Michael didn't turn up until well after Alexis Petridis Alexis. became um, yeah. chief rock critic. But yes, I was working um, for uh, Michael. He he turned, I think he started as music editor in 2006 and he stopped doing it in 2017. And Michael, by the way, is an absolutely brilliant music editor, probably the best one I've ever worked for. We had him in the music library because he's ah. written this great book about Nawabam. Uh, yeah, he was. It's really strange how into that he is, because um, he's so musically literate that it's, it's really weird to find that his true passion is uh, heavy metal. 
It's uh, a really, really good story, Denim and Leather, uh, which uh, yeah. must be coming out in paperback quite soon. But Yeah. I mean, um, he, he is a really great editor, and it's a shame he doesn't want to still do it because um, he's so good to work for, so encouraging. And also the, the fact that... Are you aware that there's 114 pages of your work at The Guardian's website? Really? Good yeah. grief. I didn't, I didn't read every word, but I swam what? in the sea. Excuse me. Wait, wait, wait. Back up here. You didn't read every word. No, I, I, I skipped some of the reviews, but I... Uh... I'm, I'm stopping this interview right now. Oh, you're, you're more than welcome. You're more than entitled to, but, <laughs> but that means we won't get to discuss your books on Ed Sheeran and Adele and uh, this is a teaser... The Bay City Rollers, or just oh. Bay City Rollers? No, the. <laughs> uh, no, it was the Bay City it was Rollers. The. Fab, because I'm yeah. a Counting Crows fan, and Adam Duritz was once. Point, um, he did a, a session for Virgin Ready. Went, no, 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 not the Counting Crows, the Crows I, I, or Counting Crows. But when did anybody ever say the Counting Crows? Ben Jones did on, and he said, "You're one of my favourite bands, the Counting Crows." The Counting Crows, ridiculous. Actually, actually, do you know what um, Jason Donovan, this is years yes. ago on radio, Jason Donovan, back when he was really, really on hip, and Radiohead were just starting to make a name for themselves with Creep, and um, he said in an inter- Jason Donovan said in an interview, one of the bands I really like is The Radioheads, <sighs> and... Um, and I just thought, oh, God, Jason, if you're trying to... No, what a, what a tragic thing to say if you're trying to... Yes, exactly. What is it try? Unsurprisingly, he gets a name check in Gary Barlow's memoir. They are oh, good friends. Their kids go to school together in, in West uh, London. Well, well, they do. I mean, I've interviewed both Jason and Gary, and, um, you know, I mean, Gary was absolutely delightful. Jason, this is a long, long time ago, uh, but I, but nowadays he seems really cool. So, um, you know, I'm willing to give him a pass for being a bit silly when he was much younger. Is it not strange that things that were once completely uncool now, now cool. suddenly become cool. Rick Astley in his 50s is playing on stage with Blossoms. ABBA are holograms in East London. Even Paul McCartney, who was not cool once upon a time, Fab Macca, wacky thumbs aloft. I w- I'm trying to speak to David and Mark later in the year, who, and uh, I can't speak to Tom Hibbert, unfortunately, because he's no longer with oh, us. But I know. Would you, would you oh. have met Tom? Uh, no, but I wish I had because he was, you know, one of my formative influences when he was at Smash Hits. He was an absolute genius. Smash Hits, utter, which utter was genius. edited by Mark Ellen, published by David Hetworth, David and Mark. Uh, so long-standing that their names were pastiche in Private Eye this week. There was an oh, article really? about the Rolling Stones, and the byline was given as something like Mark, Mark Earth, and David Hitworth or something. Um, gallop through some of your journalism um, okay. from the past. So um, you said that pop bands are about dance routines and merch deals. Um, are they still about that? Um, even more so. But the thing is that pop itself... Well, actually, which? what was that from? Oh, a long just... time ago. I think you wrote it in about 2000. Okay, because I've always adored pop far more than serious rock. I mean, I don't know anything about most, um, you know, serious rock bands. I was just reading a John Misty interview this this morning and thinking, I know nothing about you, Father John Misty. It's a, anyway, it's a construct. But yeah, go ahead. Uh, the thing about pop bands is they don't get off the ground mostly unless they have 
pretty good record company support behind them, or at least managerial support. And um, maybe not so much the dance routines anymore. I mean, I think I might have been writing writing about Steps at that point, mm-hmm. who Pete Waterman invented basically to do dance routines and to sell merchandise. Um, same with S Club 7. But certainly merch deals are a figure very, very highly in um, today's uh, pop band plot, as they call it. Every, every band has a plot. So, I mean, I went to interview, uh, sorry, to review um, BTS uh, a couple of years ago when they played the O2, and there was an absolutely gigantic queue for the, uh, it wasn't even a merch stand, it was a, an entire merch room. And uh, I know, and um, BTS themselves, um, I mean, people are absolutely passionate about them. I don't get them, but, you know. Uh, so, yes, basically, you need, pop bands need support. There's no such thing as simply a pop band, a big pop band, launching themselves and becoming gigantic. It just doesn't work that way. No, there, uh, are, there are certain bands who are big. There's Brockhampton, Why Don't We, these bands that I've never heard of because they're just micro-targeted. There's this thing called Now United, which was oh. Simon Fuller's next trick, who, only, who are kind of invented to sell products. It's really? very, very strange. Uh- God, I haven't even heard. God, I haven't even heard of them. I know, I know about Brockhampton without knowing anything about them because um, you're right; they are micro-targeted. I see their name come up on, um, you know, on Twitter occasionally, and um, I, I just haven't been curious enough to find out a lot. And they don't seem to get played on UK radio very much. I do actually listen to the radio a lot. Um, I don't find most of my pop through Spotify, although I do listen to Spotify a lot because whenever I get a, um, a link from um, a record company with a band they want to push, it's invariably a Spotify link. So mm. I listen to a Spotify a lot, even though I you know, detest it. But, um, oh, yeah, sorry. Anyway, pop bands. So <laughs> that's my take on how to, how to break a pop band. I, I loved this. I remember reading this at the time, February 2019, Pop 2.0 and globalised music. I don't know why it was you and not Snape's. Snape seems to have taken the big music in-depth pieces uh, nowadays. But you wrote about the clash between uh, Pop 1.0 acts, who were all about radio and MTV and award shows and retail and the press, and Pop 2.0, which is basically Drake and the, the horror of collaborations. What you were saying was correct. What did I say exactly? Just how the, the modern pop star is relatable and is not afraid to collaborate with each other. It's not like Gary and Robbie at each other's throats. It's kind of oh. more um, Dua Lipa and Megan The Stallion performing together as it is now. I actually think that a lot of collaborations are still done for expedience uh, rather than because two artists have a complete affinity for each other's work. I mean, Dua has actually done a collaboration with someone I didn't expect, um, Meek Mill or someone like Mm -hmm. that. Um, You know, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of collaborations are genuinely done because, um, you know, management represents both artists or the record company represents both artists. And I think, and they say, you know, what about a team up between, say, Dua and Megan when you get to a certain level you can pretty much decide on your own collaborations um I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this thought I'll rein you in um okay in as much as I do want to get to the rollers um but 
I also want to do a kind of quiz if you're up for it. If not, we can press on. But this okay. is a, what did Caroline Sullivan say about who? <laughs> um, that none, of, none of this is libelous or slanderous because it's all appeared okay. in print. Um, whom okay. did you, in a very rare five-star review, call an erudite comic maverick? Oh, God. Um, it was somebody very random, wasn't it? It, was, um, it wasn't a massive star, was no. it? No, he wears okay. a satin robe when he performs on piano. Chili Gonzalez. Chili Gonzalez, the musical yeah. genius. Uh, I yeah. also I noticed that you tend not to give ones or fives. Do you give the star ratings or are those editorially given? No, we, we the writers give them ourselves. I see. Um, and actually, can I tell you why I very rarely give ones or twos? I mean, well, I mean, unless somebody eminently deserves a one or two, um, there are times when I'll be think I'll be somewhere between a three star and a two star, and often I'll give the artist the benefit of the doubt only because, in in the dawn of my career, um, I handed out one stars like you wouldn't believe, and um, reading them back now, they were a lot of them were incredibly cruel. And um, I have no desire whatsoever to ruin somebody, some pop star, well, <laughs> some pop star's day just by saying, you know, they look and sound terrible. And what about that dress they were wearing? Christ, I wouldn't put it yeah. on my dog, you know. Um, so nowadays I will actually think through what they're trying to um, achieve and often give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And, not be horrible to them. Always review what you see, not what you don't see. You can't review, I don't know, a Peter Andre album and say, well, it's not Bach, is it? It, it doesn't work like that. Um, well, yes, exactly, yeah. And I actually quite like Peter Andre, I should point out. Once upon a time, you did say that being innocuous is worse than being rubbish. Uh, yes, I did. I did say that. But who was I talking about? I don't know. Peter Andre. Was it, well, Peter Andre. He's actually turned into, as he's got older... He doesn't perform that much anymore, but he does. He's quite um, sort of notorious for having been married to Katie Price, which, and he, he uh, Katie Price is constantly um, being very angry and um, fighting with him. And he just comes out with some really, really funny um, one-liners, and I really like him for yeah, that. In all fairness, he, that was you reviewed around the time of Insania. And uh, 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 we're now twenty it. years on from that, so yep. Was it, was it at the, was it at the Fairfield Hall that I that I reviewed him? Oh, I, I didn't know that. That sounds legitimate. In um, Croydon. Mm. Oh well, God, the Fairfield Hall in Croydon. I've read about that. That is a what a mess. They're trying oh, yeah, to really? trying to rebuild it, but they can't get the money. Or really? Or they did get the money, but it was massively over budget, and Croydon's oh, council is, is crap and. Oh, dear, yeah. that, that's really, really sad to hear that because, you know, I mean, it was a really good place for the arts in Croydon. But uh, anyway, yes, I saw Peter Andre there many, many years ago. And Katie Price, whom he was married to at the time, turned up to the gig and all of the kids, all the teenage girls in the audience were staring at her rather than yeah. at Peter Andre. And um, Well, I, I'm sure. But anyway, I've come to I've come to have a lot of time for Peter Andre. He's very funny. I mean, I can I can forgive a lot in a pop star if they're funny and sharp. James Blunt may be a posho, but he's hard to dislike. Yeah, well, for true. Instance, yeah, very true. I actually here's here's a little thing for you, which I I don't think I mentioned in whatever review that was. Um, I actually did his record company biography before just before um, the um, 
his debut album came out and um so you know i I met him to interview him for the biography and um he already had a press biography um written by carrie fisher of all yes. people yeah yes. yeah he wrote you're beautiful on her piano Yes, 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 and 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 he was he was like she was like a family friend or something. So when he was in Los Angeles doing his album, he um he stayed with Carrie Fisher. But anyway, the UK was going to be his main market. So when they were preparing to release the um, debut album, they thought that Carrie Fisher's um you know press bio was just too American sounding. So they got me in to do it. Me over Carrie Fisher? Can you believe it? <laughs> And um, and so I interviewed him, and and he was just you know really nice and funny, and but of course you know he's he's totally totally turned, you know, turned his entire life around by being brilliant on Twitter. The problem with Blunty is that you can't hum another one of these songs apart from the hit, but he still is able because of that hit to tour in perpetuity. It's like Hanson were able to come over to the UK this because week of, um, to because, play. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. To play yeah. Umbop and other songs. Umbop, 25 <laughs> years old. Next year, we'll celebrate 30 years since Suede's debut album won really? the Mercury Prize. Now, I went to Edinburgh University and I did music as an outside subject and there was a course, Music in Social Context, and I did it because Simon Frith was ah. teaching it and Simon was the chief judge the Mercury was in its what third year second second, second. year after Screamer Delica who was who else was on the panel well I was yes uh Chris Heath I think oh, this was this was before they started getting musicians onto the panel there was um oh god what, what's the name of the woman who used to write for Time Out I think she was the other the other female on the panel but it was it was basically people who were doing a lot of music criticism at that time no celebs no nobody for, I think Mark Goodyear might have been there remember Mark Goodyear yeah, the, well, yeah uh, I, rem- I remember listening to him on the top 40 and he I think he was the breakfast show host then oh my gosh amazing but um so um <laughs> Actually, I've got a little anecdote for you about um, <laughs> about um, uh, so anyway, Suede Suede won that year, but during the judges' deliberations, they they had a re- I mean, uh, basically the jury were split completely down the middle between Suede and the auteurs' first album, and um, Simon Frith cast the deciding vote in favour of Suede, and um, so. The um, at the uh, kind of uh, ceremony, which which by the way, all of the male judges had to wear black tie. Can you imagine it? <laughs> Actually, and the, and the female judges had to wear kind of evening wear. Can you uh, seriously? So I saw Luke Haynes from the auteurs walking around, and um, I went up to him and I said hi. You know, explained to him that um, you know the panel had been split right down the middle, and um, you know I was one of the ones who voted for the auteurs album, and um, you know I hope that makes you feel better. And anyway, he was very polite to me, very very nice. And then he wrote um, he wrote that that uh, his first autobiography, and uh, in it, I mean, and I read it, and and in it, I suddenly I was suddenly shocked into silence when I noted that he he had my name on one of the pages. And he actually said, so she came up to me, Caroline Sullivan came up to me and said, you know, half of us wanted you to win. I hope that makes you feel better. And then he wrote, of course, it didn't make me fucking feel better, you twat. (laughs) But he hadn't said that to me in person. He was incredibly nice. And I had actually said to him at the ceremony, um, you know, why don't you come do some writing for The Guardian? Because we'd love to have you write some pieces. And he was really, really nice, took my phone number, everything. And yet 
I read his autobiography a couple of years later and I saw what he really thought of me. Mm. Oh, God, I sobbed. Oh, so... well, maybe I can, when I'm shelving bad vibes, which I enjoyed. I mean, he's, he's very curmudgeonly. But it's a great was, book. It's brilliant. a great book. Mm. And it joins your books on the shelves of the Music Library, which also has Simon Frith's books. And it has oh. a great book about suede written by, I think, not their publicist, but someone involved in the suede camp. Oh, uh, Phil, Phil Savage. Oh, no, it's a, uh, it could be Phil. I thought it was a woman. I saw it in Waterstones the other day. Does it, does it, does it say Jane Savage? Jane Savage. Ah, yeah. Yes. Jane is Jane is trans with uh, with John Best. They used to be Savage and Savage Best, and they yes. and they did all of the Brit the Britpop Brit PR. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're mentioned um, in John Harris's book. Yes, well. and so you know, Savage and Best were the PR back in the early nineties. Um, but um, I actually interviewed um, uh, Suede about three times as well, and um, you know, thought they were absolutely fantastic people. Love them. I've got uh, Bernard Butler's new album with Jesse Buckley to listen to. I know. Uh, I know. I mean, he's he's done amazing things, hasn't he? Didn't he produce Pixie Lot or something, someone like that? Duffy. Um, Duffy. Yes. Duffy. Yes. Yes. I mean, I've you know, I've I've interviewed Bernard as well. And I've got just such massive respect for him, for you know, creating an entire new career by following his heart. That's what that's what an artist does. I still haven't yet read the book I want to read about the music business and the musician as an artist. And it's very interesting that you've written two books, which are song by song collections, one about Ed Sheeran and the other by Adele. I gobbled them both up. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed them because I knew bits and pieces about them. Um, But I never realised how much of a business wonk Ed Sheeran is. There's, I mean, there's totally. no surprise that he's now selling out Wembley Stadium again. Um, but you know, I, I actually, I've actually never met him. I have reviewed him a couple of times. I've written a book about him. I've actually got. I mean, I know that he is a very marmite character, and I'm on the side of really liking him because um, I just, I just really, I appreciate the fact that he'll still do like somebody's little podcast if he. If he thinks it's the right thing to do, he'll, you know, he'll suddenly phone up out of the blue like some midnight talk show and say, hi, it's Ed Sheeran. Um, he's, he, um, whatever you think of his output, and I tend to like a lot of it. Um, he's, a, he's a huge business and he wants to keep himself in business, but he's also kind of quite a decent person. You know, I actually really like him. I like him too. I'd love to sit down with him. He's actually uh, from, well, he grew up in Flam- Framlingham. Framlingham, in yes. Suffolk, which is where the castle on the hill is. And my mum has a cottage in nearby Wesselton. And we went oh, really? to Framlingham for lunch. And you walk past the car, down from the car park towards the, the castle. And there's a life-size cutout of Ed. <laughs> And I, that must be perfect. He doesn't want that. Um, I don't. I don't think he does. I mean, did you did you manage to see his compound? Uh, no, not quite. The one with the pub in the the basement or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's got like like eight different different houses on the premises, and you know, yeah. I I can't find it within myself to dislike anything about Ed Sheeran. You called him. I like this in 2014. So just when the Multiplier record came out, a live wire choir master. Which oh, is... did I? Oh, that's quite a good line, Brilliant. isn't it? <laughs> really, really good.
you've also um we'll talk about madonna uh shortly but oh. you've written these obituaries you seem to be the the chief obituarist um, before Alexis got there now he seems to his job seems to be chief obituarist at the Guardian now but you did one for Left Eye Michael Jackson Scott Hutchinson from Frightened Rabbit whom I met who's a, a lovely guy uh, Whitney Aww. Houston Amy Winehouse when you write them do you feel um, sad that you've had to write this obituary or happy that they've made that music while they were obviously fighting all these demons uh, actually if I can just uh, impose sorry interject um, something the Guardian r- writes loads of its obituaries in advance and I've written dozens and dozens that haven't been used yet so in a funny sort of way I'm still an extremely busy obituarist and I've just I've just written a really sensational one for a singer who's you know very um, very much alive and well um, so but but to go, but to go back to the ones that have actually been used. Um, when I wrote them, most of those people were still alive. I wrote Whitney when she was alive. Um, Michael Jackson. I mean, the th- <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll tell you briefly how. Uh, and most newspapers do the same thing. They have yeah, a stack file. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and 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 basically, um, newspapers will commission an obituary if an artist is either very unhealthy and living close to the edge. Or, I mean, as you can imagine, Pete Doherty was done years ago. I was going to exactly um, say that. Well, yeah, done. I know he's 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 been on file for years. Um, I did Amy Winehouse before she passed. Um, or um, um, or unless they're over the age of seventy, and then you know, then they get one done. But um, generally, because I wrote them when they were actually alive, um, and then and then the obituaries were actually used. Um, it was it was a really. Um, I mean, one of the things that I tended to um, regret most was that often the artist had done other work since I wrote the obit, and I didn't, and I, I had reappraised their life and career, and I didn't really get a chance to to say that because I'd written the obituary already. So, um, so it's a it's a, it's a strange, uh, strange sort of um, thing to do. Yeah, if I were, advanced obits. If I were to go into music journalism, I would bank loads of obituaries as well because it's the uh, there are so many more famous people than there were, and it was sad knowing that you'd written this book, Bye Bye Baby, or Tragic Love Affair with the Bay City Rollers. It was sad reading your obituary of Les McKeown, the rock star. McKe- trapped... Actually, can I say it's McEwen? Did I say McKean? McKe- you did. It's McEwen, but it's 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 a fi- it's the way it's spelled. I mean, it, you wouldn't know how to pronounce it. So thank God his first name isn't Gronje or yeah. Keem or something. <laughs> no, it, it it think think Rod McEwen, the poet, and it's pronounced like McEwen. A yeah. rock star trapped in a boy band. Fame for him was a mixed blessing. He was feline and slinky, even at eighteen. So. Um, Grail Marcus. Oh, he's another one with a funny name. Grail Marcus. Greel? Yes, I'm no, Grail. How do we pronounce? I've no idea. Mr. Grail, Marcus. Grail. Mm. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Mr. Mar- yeah, exactly, yeah. sir. He was, he was sir. a fan of your book. I imagine Will Hodgkinson has um, had a look at it because he's written a book all about 70s pop. Oh, has a- do you know, I should know these things. I probably do know these things. You but, won't uh, be able to get away from it because he's, he's yeah. got his own column in the Times, so we'll know about it. No, I do. I do know Will. Um, in fact, in fact, I had dinner with him last um, last July when I was going to review, uh, God, I think it was Celeste at um, Union Chapel. Will was there. So I do know him. I just don't know whether he's written this book or not. So that's bad of me, isn't it?
I think maybe he will um, thank you for any information about Les McEwen because basically rollers like Shawaddy Waddy or Slade or Wizard or The Sweet, the kind of the big pop master bands where you always get a question every week on one of those five bands. Mm. It, was it like following One Direction in 2012 if you were 35 years younger or was there yes. something more than that? Um it was like following One Direction. I mean, in that the passion, the passion that we felt was exactly like the passion the Directioners, that was the fandom name, Directioners felt. Um, the only thing we didn't have was social media back then. Um, so the Directioners, I think, were able to egg each other on because they all met online and they were able to talk online. Whereas as a Bay City Roller fan in the 70s, you were limited to either the fans who lived in the same city as you or, you know, you could kind of um, write to pen pal sites and find a roller, a roller pen pal. But um, the, the directioners, I mean, I was really fascinated by them because um, they were, um, you know, they were, some of them were incredibly vicious. I mean, if they didn't like a review of, of One Direction, they'd, um, you know, just um, deluge the reviewer with um, hate, you know, hate tweets. Um, <laughs> in fact, even if actually um, I, I reviewed, I reviewed both BTS and Monster X the last few years. And, um, and even though both of the reviews were positive, I got these really angry tweets from really mad fans. Um, I think Monster, the Monster X hate tweets were because I'd compared them to another group, another Korean group, saying, you know, Monster X are slightly like this group. And they were these kids were absolutely furious that I dared to actually say they're like a different group. And um, with BTS, they didn't like something else. Um, I think if social media had been around in the 70s, we would have been absolute little monsters ourselves. Now, as it was, you had uh, low cunning and ferocious determination. Yes. Did you Did you angle yeah. that determination to any other area of your life, or did you just pour it onto Tam Payton's <laughs> boys, tartan-clad uh, boys? The only other time I've um, really attacked anything with massive determination was in getting my uh, journalism career off the ground because it was the one thing I really, really wanted to do with with my life. So, so basically, I mean, I, I could have put a lot more effort into schoolwork or um, jobs, but um, I've, had, I've had two massive passions in my life, the rollers and wanting to become a music journalist. And um, so, yeah. And you've got the, the job at Melody Maker, so... Um, I, I'm sure there's lots of stuff online, but if I went to the British Library, would I be able to search for your bylined pieces and oh, get God, ink on massively. my fingers? Yes, Matthew. There, there were tons and tons of things I wrote, although um, I will say this with the uh, proviso that uh, I was terrible for about the first five years of my career. So I was just very, very lucky to get on to Melody Maker at the exact time they were looking for female journalists because they only... This was um, 1985, um, and they only had, they had two female journalists on their staff and zero female freelancers, except for um, two women in America who who did um, kind of stringer stuff. Um, sorry, sorry, one woman in Liverpool, Penny Penny, whose name I can't remember. Sorry, that's awful. And Sylvie Simmons in, Sylvie in Simmons, um, yeah. yeah, and Sylvie Simmons in Los Angeles. And um, so I became, um, I guess, their chief female freelancer. And um, I worked at it really hard, but I was absolutely appalling for the first five years. And I honestly think that 
if this had been today and I was just starting out and I was as bad as I was, um, no publication would have kept me. Um, but thankfully, I was around exactly when Melody Maker wanted to seem more inclusive. So are you saying that you had ambition, music, style? Uh, <laughs> oh, I wonder where you got that phrase. Segway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, had, I had absolutely zero style, but I had ambition and I, I loved the music and I went to gigs um, just off, off my own bat, um, kind of three or four nights a week. So I had the ambition and I had the music. I just didn't have any style. I <laughs> so. think I read a really good piece where you spoke to the Spice Girls when they were, oh, those Spice Girls. Uh, you compare them to Big Fun, which even you oh, have yes, admitted yeah. uh, was, was a bit premature. Mel C's got a memoir out this year. I hope you get to speak to her using that contact because she's lived a life these last 25 years. Well, she she really has, hasn't she? And she was always the Spice Girl who was, you know, said to be the one with the big voice, um, whereas, the, you know, the others didn't sing quite as well as she did. And, yes, she certainly has had a life. And she's, you know, she, um, she, I mean, I think for her, it really was the music before anything else. Yes. And, and everybody, everybody likes Mel. You know, she's really, really down to earth. She has a Scouse accent, which is very disarming. And um, she just seems like... Um, you know, quite a, a kind of... And she seems like a kind of girl's girl as well. You know, you can sit down and have a drink with her. She's now a gay icon. I, I, I imagine oh, I, she, uh, she did some stuff me. this weekend for Pride. Uh, you also spoke to a lot of Spice Girls fans, um, which I thought was a fab piece. In 2016, the 20th anniversary yeah. of Wannabe. It's now 26 years, no one's counting. Um, I know. Is that, <laughs> it's not one of those anniversaries, is it? No, it doesn't end in a five or a naught. So exactly. no commissioning exactly. editor is going to say exactly. anything. Um, but yes, this Madonna book, which again I found in the library, Ambition, Music and Style, um, gobbled oh. that up as well. Um, Madonna is in that era where no one is going to become a Madonna fan if she puts out a song tomorrow. She is, I'm actually writing something about Garth Brooks at the moment, and Garth is just a couple of years younger than Madonna. I think a line can be drawn between the kind of ambition that both of those had and they used the media very well but madonna will go down as the one who even beyond prince and michael jackson used the image to her game um, oh absolutely she one of her uh, great pieces of luck was starting her career just after mtv launched because everything she did was so visual she was also living in new york which was kind of hotbed of coolness in the early 80s and she she had a kind of um i mean ambition it's an overused word but she had you know, I was talking about drive before. She had drive like nobody else has ever had before or since. Not even Ed Sheeran or Beyonce had Madonna's drive. Um, I mean, she actually, um, I think when she was signed to Sire, she actually, that was it. She, she managed to get signed by um, going in to see Seymour Stein, the president of Sire, when he was in hospital for a minor operation. She actually sang at the foot of his bed. And um, and he actually thought, ah, oh, okay, now I get the now I get the commotion about Madonna. Okay, let's sign this woman. If any one of those things hadn't been in place, I mean, if MTV hadn't started yet, you know, you have to. She's one of those people who just came along when a lot of variables fell into place for her. 
you know, I mean, Jackson was, he was around, he'd been around for like 15 years before Madonna and um, Prince, you know, came along in the late 70s. With Madonna, she was just, I think, incredibly talented, incredibly driven and kind of incredibly lucky. I wanted to compare that to what you said in 2000. Sorry, I know I'm uh, going back into your back catalogue quite a bit. But you wrote a great piece about the Westlife versus Spice Girls battle for uh, number I one. Remember, I remember that totally. The, the two of them had... Uh, the Spice Girls released their... Um, it was at Forever, wasn't it? That was the name of the album, yes. wasn't it? Their last album, they released Forever. And Westlife had released an album that week as well. And there was a race between them to get to number one. Westlife won that race. They became number one. Spice Girls were number two. And Baby Spice, to my absolute shock and infuriation said oh Westlife really deserved this number one they've worked so hard for it and what she meant was they'd done so many chat shows and you know done done so many seat, sitting on stools you know concert appearances she didn't say they deserve it because they're really brilliant and the album is amazing they deserve it because oh they worked really hard and um, I just thought that was appalling Yes, you said it was about shareholders having a happy Christmas and that ambition is deemed more important than talent. And then you get into, you really sink your teeth into the kids that turn up at the poll winners party that smash hits do. Blonde highlights and pierced belly buttons, high on Pepsi Max. Then you go to the pop idol show, which is grimly mercenary, a huge amateur talent night raging extroverts who happen to be able to sing these are good lines but thank god you were paid to watch all of that because i would have I, I went to see the cast of glee once in the o2 and it's one of the loudest gigs i've ever heard abysmal were those i guess those smash hits gigs would have been quite loud actually the this party I god I shouldn't have been so mean about that because I loved smash it so much and I don't know why I would have taken the poll winners party to task it was it was the um, reality shows that I absolutely despised but um but yes I actually went to a smash hits uh, poll winners party I think it was the 1999 one and um it was incredibly loud and um did I did I put in the piece that um all saints had have jacket that all saints broke up did, you, did I put that in the piece um Ooh, you may have. I didn't write it down. You said oh, okay, Westlife well, were ubiquitous. Okay, well, All Saints, I think, were supposed to be at that poll winners party, and they actually broke up backstage. Um, over, you know, they, they had a fight over a jacket, and I was talking to somebody backstage at the gig, and um, and I said, so how are you going to cover the fact that? All Saints are not going to be on, you know, they're not going to be on. And and whoever this person was said, oh, I'll just do a bit more presenting on stage. And I thought, oh, a bit more presenting. So it's about present, you know, being a presenter, a bit more presenting. What does presenting mean? You know, obviously I'm talking to the audience and covering All Saints' absence, but I'll do a bit more presenting. And um, I just thought, you know, direction I don't like. And then, of course, the reality shows absolutely detested them and still do. It was just the real... I read a hatchet job this weekend of the Jesse Burton book, and I thought, that is... And he, the, the, the reviewer just quoted about 100 words of rancid prose. And when you get to the nub of something, that is great criticism. And you absolutely got to the nub, and this is where we'll finish... Caroline Sullivan in the Music Library, four books already, Bay City Rollers, Madonna, Ed Sheeran, Adele, and the book that you start today as this goes out, 
uh, American Independent State. Dua Lipa, title TBC. You went to Country to Country 2018, and I always, I went to that festival. Um, You wrote, having, um, and you've also reviewed Courtney Marie Andrews, Cam, Marin Morris, Ward Thomas, Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, Carrie, and Casey Musgraves, who was uh, the big act in that year. Country means whatever you want it to mean. Did I say that? That is completely, I remember that. I remember reading that four years ago. Uh, Oh, actually, yes. Yes, I actually remember that, but I'm what I meant was that um, country is no longer one stratified strand where it's all about uh, cowboy hats and sequins. Uh, the The definition of country has expanded to uh, occupy so many other spaces. Uh, in the way that pop music seems to be, I was just humming Post Malone about an hour ago and thought, oh, the mono genre strikes again. That pop music, <laughs> pop music is now a streaming metric. Drake is pop because he's he sounds popular, but I think we want more, we want more spangle more, in pop more, music. Yes, more spangle, more Dua Lipa. Correct. Um, yeah, and, and actually, can I finish by saying um, one thing? I hear, I mean, people who don't really understand what pop music is, they'll they'll point at a group like Haim and say, Haim, they're so poppy. No, they're not. They're basically an indie group who. <laughs> You know, I mean, if, if this had been the age of Melody Maker, they'd have been on the cover of Melody Maker all the time. Um, Heim are not indie. Courtney Love once did a song for, um, oh God, American, what was the name of that album? American something. And she said, this is such a pop song. And I listened to whatever the song was. No, it's not. That's not pop. It's just, it has a chorus, yes, but it's not pop. So, um, you know, I um, I subscribe to the Tom Hibbert um, school of pop, which is that um, it um, it makes you twitch. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what you mean. We'll have to talk about that off air. Caroline <laughs> Sullivan, uh, thank you for stopping by thank you. at the Music Library. Good luck with this Do a Lipper book. Thank uh, you.